Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. of the New Testament. Let's say them together. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are known as the Gospels. Of course, Gospel simply means good news. And these four books share the good news of Jesus Christ. What is that? Is that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died for our sins, and he rose victoriously after three days in the grave. That is the essence of of the four books. But in the four books called the Gospels, what happens is we see the human connections, the personal stories. And um, each one of the writers of the Gospel, they wrote the, about the same person, the, the same sequence of events. And each one wrote in his own style, in his own vocabulary, from his own point of view, from his own personality. Um, in fact, the, uh, when you talk to a police officer, the reason that they want to talk to witnesses is, is because those witnesses saw that accident from different angles. And it's amazing, the witness, you could have four witnesses see the same uh, accident from four different ways, and they'll tell it four different ways. But the accident happened, and that's what they're going to tell you. The same thing about the life of Jesus. We have four men who walked with Jesus Christ on this earth, and they were able to tell the story about that. Well, Mark portrays Jesus as a servant, and this theme is throughout the book of Mark of Jesus serving. In fact, in Mark 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. When you go to the book of Luke, it portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. And being a physician, Luke, he emphasized the humanity of Jesus, and he writes to appeal to the Gentiles. We come to the book of John. John, he portrayed Jesus as the Son of God. And more than the other Gospels, he gives a magnificent insight into the deity of Christ. Now we're in the book of Matthew. And Matthew portrays Jesus as the King of the Jews. But on a grander scale, he shows him to be the King of Kings. And Matthew is filled with the references to the kingdom of God and I want you to know that Matthew is writing primarily to the Jewish people. And so I realize that we're Gentiles. In fact, if we go through our entire congregation, I know of only two Jewish people who are members of our congregation. So um, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people. And so with this in mind, let's begin right in verse number one and begin this journey this morning. All right, verse number one, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Now, if I were to continue doing this, we would go for the next 15 verses, and some of you would check out and say, this is going to be a very exciting study. So let's go ahead and drop down to verse 16. 
And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are how many generations? Fourteen generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are? Fourteen generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are? Fourteen generations. Father, uh, please allow me to be able to eloquently be able to speak your word, explain your word. Allow us to fall in love with your word. Help us to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this message, and probably for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to use this phrase, one king. But this morning, I've entitled an examination of his genealogy. All right. I have tried to figure out how to make this exciting. Because we're going to preach through the book of Matthew, and it really will be an exciting study. But let's take your family tree and preach a message out of your family tree. And go back all of these generations and see if we can learn something. Do you know, in studying this, I have really discovered that there are some exciting things in the lineage of Jesus. And when we study this genealogy uh, uh, of Jesus, there are some important lessons that we can learn. Let me help you. We're going to be in Matthew for 18 to 24 months. It's going to be a long time every Sunday morning, unless it's something specific uh, about that Sunday. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. We're going to learn everything we can about Matthew. Now, let me say this. Um, this is a magnificent auditorium, right? I'm so, I am so thankful for the foresight that Pastor Johnson had back in the 1976 era or along there to build this auditorium. It's still fresh and modern today, and, um, and, and I'm very thankful for it. But do you know there's a part of this building that you cannot see that is very important, incredibly important? It's below you, it's below this wall back here, and it's called a what? A foundation. The foundation is not that pretty. In fact, it's not highlighted anywhere. We love our walls and our paint and our carpet and our, sea, our seats that we're in. We enjoy the air conditioning. But the fact of the matter is if this building did not have a foundation, we would be in danger. And that is true about the life of Christ. If there is not a foundation for us to understand the significance of Jesus Christ, then who is he? Is he really a real man? And I am so thankful that the writers of the book of the Bible, in particular Matthew, decided that it was important to include the genealogy. And so the idea of a coming king, it was the, it was the centerpiece of Old Testament prophecy. And from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God proclaims that the seed of the woman would bruise Satan's head through the writings and warnings of the prophets, uh, there, would, there would be a king that was going to come, uh, that was going to establish an everlasting kingdom. And none of Israel's Old Testament kings even came close to fulfilling this prophecy. May I share with you, let's use the Bible to share uh, as a foundational part of our message today about the significance of Jesus coming as a king. In Psalm 2 and verse 6 it says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. In Psalm 24 verse 9 and 10, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. In Isaiah 7 
Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, shall call his name Emmanuel. Micah 5 and verse 2 says, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Listen to Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonder. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Talking about Jesus Christ. Zephaniah 3 in verse number 15. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. Zechariah 9 in verse 9. Rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion. Shout O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Peter wrote of these prophecies. He said this, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The entire New Testament proclaims Jesus to be a king. The word kingdom is used some 147 times. The term king refers to Christ 35 times. And there's at least 10 references to the reign of Christ. Now understand that Matthew is a human writer of this divinely inspired book that sits in your lap. Who was Matthew? He was a tax collector. He is, a, he is very modest and only refers to himself in this book in the third person. Unlike John, who often talked about uh, that he was the favorite disciple of Jesus and how much Jesus loved him, there was such, there was such um, between Peter, James, and John, there was such competition isn't that amazing in the Word of God? And John, he was the one who had to announce and pronounce that Jesus loved him. He was like a favorite. Matthew doesn't do that. He refers to himself in the third person. He's very modest. He penned the original manuscript only a few years after the ascension of Jesus there in the book of Acts. Matthew shows us a couple of different aspects about Christ's ministry. He's the king who was revealed, and he was the king who was rejected, and he's the king who will one day return. And to establish Jesus as king, Matthew does something that may sound boring to you, but the more I dig into it, I promise you it's really not that boring. Matthew, he gives us the royal lineage. He gives us Jesus' pedigree, and since the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, no Jew has been able to fully trace his lineage. And for those who still wait the Messiah, how shall they validate this royal heritage? Well, there are two genealogies of Christ in the New Testament. Matthew's gene genealogy is in what we'll call a descending order from Abraham through Joseph, who was Jesus' legal but not natural father. And Matthew's intent is 
His intent is to authenticate when Jesus said that he had a legal right to the throne of David is that Matthew was authenticating that legal right. And then in Luke, it records the other uh, genealogy of Jesus, and it's written in ascending order. It's intense to show Jesus as a blood descendant of David, and it's apparently traced back through Mary's side, and Heli was probably Joseph's father-in-law. Therefore, Jesus had a royal line, a bloodline, if you will, to the throne of Israel. It, 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 I understand. It may seem rather dry and boring to study the lineage of Christ. Bear with me. Because many of us, we simply skip over this. I think your pastor did that this morning. We skip verses 3 through 15. And all of those names. Because that's what we normally do when we read the Bible. We don't know how to pronounce them. We don't know how to say them. Why am I reading this? However, if you will pay close attention... You should marvel at the detailed manner in which God establishes this pedigree for the king of Judah. And this genealogy teaches us that Jesus not only has a right to be the king of the Jews, but he has a right to be the king of kings and the Lord of all. And so let me share with you in our time together this morning six simple thoughts that I've mined out from here in studying the genealogy of Jesus. First of all, the, the lineage of Jesus, or this genealogy, confirms him as king over Israel. First of all, it confirms him as king over Israel. So let's go right back into our scripture and see here, in verse number 1, Jesus is called the son of David. As the genealogy shows in verses 6 and, and, and over in Luke chapter 3, Jesus was a direct descendant of King David. In fact, the term son of David is the messianic title of Christ. This term means Jesus is Israel's savior. David was the greatest king in the history of the nation, and he brought about a great military and economic and social prosperity to Israel. And though he was a sinful man, God even referred to David as a man after mine own heart. And God made a very special promise to King David. He said this through Dathan, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. This promise was not uh, 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 fulfilled. It was not to be fulfilled in Solomon, but it was to be fulfilled in Jesus. We see in verse number 1 that, that Jesus is also the son of Abraham. God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees when he was 75 years old. In Genesis chapter 12, he made a promise. Notice the Abrahamic uh, covenant. In verse number 3, the Lord said, And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He was the direct descendant of Abraham, and through his death and resurrection, all the people of the earth may receive the blessing of salvation. My friend, <coughs> when we look at this, because of this, we can have salvation. Isn't that amazing? In Genesis 22 and verse 18, the Lord said, and, <coughs> excuse me, and in thy seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. In Galatians chapter 3, it clarifies, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. In verse number 2, we see the Bible says that Jesus is also in the line of Isaac. 
Isaac was also one of the patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, in obedience to God, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Guess what this picture was a picture of? It was a, it was a forerunner. It was a picture of Christ. Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb. Who was that lamb? The lamb was Jesus Christ. In verse number 2, we see Jesus is also in the line of Judah. Jacob was the son of Isaac, whose name means deceiver. And uh, in Genesis chapter 32, he wrestled with a man. And verse 28, and over in Hosea chapter 12, it tells that this man was none other. Uh, thank you so much. Was, uh, was, was God, uh, was tells us this man was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus was then, uh, then blessed Japheth and called him Israel, which means this. Uh, he was the prince with God. Look with me there in verse number 2. Jesus is in that line of Judah. Jacob had 12 sons who became 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jacob lay on his deathbed, he blessed Judah and he foretold Christ. Listen to this sweet verse all the way back in Genesis chapter 49. The scepter, that's the symbol of the king, shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And to him shall be gathering of the people be. So we see, first of all, that certainly Jesus and that lineage, Jesus was here as he came, confirms him as the king over Israel or the Jewish people. All right, so that doesn't apply to us. The other five points apply to us. So listen carefully. As I study the genealogy of Jesus, I see this. The lineage of Jesus confirms him as king over sinners, as king over sinners. Jesus was a descendant, in verse number 3, of someone whose name was Tamar. Who was Tamar? Tamar was a Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. And because of their wickedness, God had taken the lives of her first two husbands, Ur and his brother Onan. And Judas promised uh, her that when her younger son, Shelah, was grown, that he would be her husband and raise up children in his brother's names. But when Shelah grew older, Judah failed to keep that promise. In Genesis 38, it records the story of how Tamar dressed herself as a prostitute and tricked Judah into sexual relations. And from that incestuous, illicit union were born two twins, Perez and Zerah. I want you to listen to this. Despite prostitution, deception, and incest, God's grace included these desperate and deceptive sinners in the line of the king. Do you know what? Each one of us, we're a sinner. And we say we could thumb our nose at, at the fact of Tamar, but our sin sent Jesus to the cross. And each one of us, we are a sinner. But the Bible doesn't say it's just Tamar, for in verse number 5 it says Jesus was a descendant of somebody named Rahab. Rahab was also a Canaanite woman. She not only dressed like a prostitute, she was a prostitute who works the sleazy streets of a town called Jericho. Because of her fear of God and respect for, her, uh, for his people, she protected the two Israelite spies that were sent into the land by Joshua. And when the city was destroyed, God not only spared her life, but also brought Jesus into her line. And she married a man by the name of Simon who became the mother of Boaz, who was the great-grandfather of King David. How interesting. 
Jesus was also a descendant of David, of her that hath been the wife of Uriah, there in verse number 6. And though David was a great king, he was also a great sinner. And one day he saw Bathsheba, the wife of a soldier named Uriah, bathing, and he lusted for her, and the Bible says he committed adultery with her, and she became pregnant with David's child, and David decided uh, to bring Uriah home. But Uriah would not even go see his wife when he came back off the battlefield. And uh, eventually David sent Uriah to the front of the battle to be killed. And he then married Bathsheba for himself. And God judged David and Bathsheba that day for their sin. And that baby died. However, in mercy, God gave them another son whose name was Solomon. And from Solomon came Jesus' line. And all of those in Jesus' lineage, they were sinners And we are all sinners, and is it not wonderful that God loved us in spite of our sin? There's a third thought. The lineage of Jesus confirms him as king over Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, but the lineage of Jesus confirms him as king over Gentiles. When we look around that person seated next to you, in front of you, or behind you, they're a Gentile, so this message applies to you. The Canaanite woman, whose name was Rahab, became one of Jesus' grandmothers. And what I have not mentioned is is that God had commanded them actually to be eradicated. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. And even in the direct disobedience, God still had mercy because we see that Ruth was also a Gentile. You see, Ruth was a Moabitess. The Moabites were the product of that incestuous relations of Lot with his two unmarried daughters, and the sisters produced sons from their father, and one was named Moab, the father of a nation that became one of Israel's bitter enemies. And Ruth married an Israelite man named Malon, and when he died, she followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel, where she later married someone named Boaz. And she became the grandmother of King David. We should rejoice that Jesus is not just a king to the Jews, but of all people, and especially we who are Gentiles this morning. My friend, just out of the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus, we can see that the writer of the book of Matthew is establishing a foundation that we can absolutely have absolute confidence in the man Jesus. Here's a fourth thought. The lineage of Jesus confirms him as king, and don't miss this, over failures. The lineage of Jesus confirms him as a king over failures. You see, in verse number 1, it says, The Hebrew people were carried away to Babylon, and because of their failure to obey God and to be faithful to him, he allowed them to be conquered by their enemies and to be carried away to a life of captivity in Babylon. And God did not choose a perfect nation from which Jesus to be born. In fact, Israel was an abject failure. The joy is that God loved them. And God would continually, in his grace and mercy, offer forgiveness and restitution and give them a place again until they failed again. Isn't that like many of us as Christians? Oh, we make, we make things right during our Lord's Supper and Communion service. Lord, I'm going to do right. 
And it only takes just a matter of a few hours, and some of us were back in that cycle, and it may only take a few days for others, and maybe some make it a month. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're all failures, and the fact that we get into the cycle of sin, and we cannot get out of the cycle of sin, and the fact is, God still loves us and uses us anyway. And I say this morning, you may have failed at everything you have ever done, but Jesus will still accept you. And as you are seated here this morning and you are feeling discouraged and you are down and you do not know what to do with your life and you say, I failed him again and I am such a failure and God can never use you and you think that God can never use you and you believe that God can never use you, I'm just here to say that you look at the nation of Israel and what he did with the nation of Israel. God desires to use you. Jesus understands your failure because he came in a line of failures. My fifth thought, the lineage of Jesus confirms him as king over nobodies. The lineage of Jesus confirms him as king over nobodies. Throughout this genealogy, we see the, the names of famous patriarchs. Oh, we've, we've acknowledged that there are kings and supposedly there are important people. David was a king. Solomon was a king. And then there's people that we do not even know. We, see there, we, we also see the names of common, seemingly insignificant people. And though the world may remember little of them, may I just say God does. Think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was not part of an immaculate conception. She was a simple Jewish girl. She was a sinner in need of a savior. Until she was met with an angel, and we see the story over in Luke chapter 1. It says, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. The fact of the matter is, is that we know that Mary was nothing but a servant girl that God used. And you say, I'm a nobody this morning. Nobody even knows my name. Nobody cares about me. Nobody, uh, if I were to stand up and, and, and I were to give a testimony, the majority of the people uh, wouldn't even know my name. I just tell you, there's one who does know your name. And his name is God. And his son, Jesus Christ, came to make you a somebody. You can be a nobody to the world and still be a somebody in the kingdom of God. And there's some of us, we're so focused on what our friends think about us. And we're so focused on what our family thinks about us. And we're so focused on what others in church think about us. And we derive our satisfaction from the praise and approval of other people. May I just tell you uh, that God's looking for the nobodies to use. The people that are the Marys who are insignificant and they are, are, are the servant girls. And they have no pedigree, if you will. God's looking for people that's just willing to be used. I often marvel over the fact that I come from West Virginia. And if you're from West Virginia, please, I, I don't mean to disparage our heritage. And if I'd offend you this morning, I ask you ahead of time to forgive me. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the era I grew up in West Virginia, that education wasn't really that important. Nobody heard of Brent Armstrong. I can tell you growing up, in Fairmont, West Virginia, out in the country where we had chickens and pigs. And yes, we had two goats, Flipper and Skipper. <laughs> the Flipper and Skipper were housebroken. They would come in our house. I've seen Flipper and Skipper many times. I'm so embarrassed to say it on top of my mom and dad's bed sleeping. 
goats. My sister Paula, she, she trained one of our chickens to be housebroken, named her Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene would come in. Mary Magdalene would talk to Flipper and Skipper. And then my mom, I mean, she had a skunk. And, and, and the skunk's name was Skip, uh, uh, Skipper and, and uh, um, Scooter, excuse me, Scooter. And, um, and he would always scooting back. I never, I walked to him and he put his tail up and he hated me. And uh, I just, listen, I, none of you live like that. I mean, none of you have goats and chickens coming in and out of your house and skunks living in your house. I mean, I, this can all be verified the next time my mother comes. You can ask her. I'm not telling you any stories. She's probably watching now just shaking her head. I, I, I grew up where it was normal to say, I ain't got anything, and, and, um, and, and I gots to go to the bathroom. I, I grew up in an era where the English language, we didn't even know how to speak English, and we had animals growing uh, uh, all around us and coming in and out of our house and, and um, chickens and pigs and horses and cows. And, and In fact, uh, this is a true story. My mom and dad had a Ford Falcon, and we didn't have a pickup truck at that time, and my Uncle Jack gave us a calf. And so we drove to Mannington, which is about a 45 to 50-minute uh, drive away, and, and we brought a calf in the back seat of a Ford Falcon back to our house. So, uh, I, I, I mean... Uh, the, my dad sat in the back seat, my mom drove the car, and three of us in the front seat, and my dad trying to keep the calf from coming up in the front seat. With I remember that crystal clear like it happened yesterday. <laughs> this is my heritage that I grew up in West Virginia. Some of you are going to leave the church just because your pastor so weird. I understand. <laughs> I, th this is how I grew up. I literally was a nobody in West Virginia, and I went off to Bible college. I was still a nobody because I didn't have it two dimes to rub together, uh, and, and all I did was work and go to school. I was a nobody. Today, you know what? I'm still a nobody, but God's allowed me to be used as somebody to pastor a church. And when he looked, when he looked at me in West Virginia, he said, we got to get that boy out of there. And I have pictures to prove it. I have stories to prove it. I mean, I have some really tough stories I could tell you about growing up in West Virginia. I literally was a nobody. Nobody even knew my name. Nobody cared about me. Nobody would have ever, ever thought that I could be standing in front of hundreds of people this morning, pastoring a church. But I just tell you what, God wants to use nobodies to become somebodies for him. And here's what I do know, that the moment I think I'm a somebody, he's going to make sure I'm a nobody. And you know why? Because when I ever take credit for anything that happens, I'm smart enough at this moment to know that it wasn't me. It was only him that could have helped me. Relearn the English language. Learn how to write grammar. It was only him who could have helped uh, this absolute nobody who sat in college and, and failed, the, uh, failed the placement exam and had to take bonehead English in college and learn how to speak English all over. And um, I, I can tell you that there's some of you that think you're an absolute nobody. God could never use you. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. If you'll surrender to the Lord and allow the Lord to use you, you can become somebody in his eyes. And by the way, that's all that matters. It does not matter if the world gives you their accolades and pats on the back because they're fleeting and they'll go away in a moment. But Jesus, in this line, he was able to take a whole bunch of nobodies and he allowed 
the God of heaven allowed Jesus to go through that bloodline. It's an amazing story. Finally, this morning, the lineage of Jesus confirms him as king over time. The lineage of Jesus confirms Jesus as king over time. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, we read that the lineage extends over three great areas of history. And we see that's listed there in, in uh, uh, 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. And in each one of these eras, God was at work preparing the world for the coming of the king. May I just say his sovereign grace was in control. And today, his sovereign grace is still yet in control of your life. And God is preparing the world for the second coming of the king. And the next time, he will not come as a peasant. He's not going to come born in a stable. Majesty, the next time he's coming as the king of kings on a white stallion, and he's coming as the conqueror. Having just completed the study of Revelation, I couldn't help but be reminded of a portion of Scripture that we studied in Revelation chapter 19. Can I just, can I just share this with you when we talk about him being a, 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 in his genealogy, in his Lineage and how it confirms that he is coming over time. Listen to what the Bible says. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. By the way, who is that? Do you know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior? And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it should smite the nations. And he hath ruled with them a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, one king of kings, is coming back. And I have to ask you, are you ready to meet him? Are you ready? This morning as I close this message, may I ask you this personal question. What are you doing to make a difference for the cause of Christ? Would you close your Bibles, but keep out your handout. Keep your handout out. Close your Bibles. Keep your hand out. Keep it open to that last little section there. I'd like to ask you a question. I gave a testimony about John, and I know, he, he'll, I, I, I know that he is embarrassed that I gave a testimony and all the great details, and he may leave the church after I gave that uh, testimony. I don't know. But may I just say this? is that even when your heart's not working the way it should, you can still serve the Lord. Even when you're older, you can still serve the Lord. We're teaching our young people to serve the Lord and to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're teaching them right now. They're being taught. They're being taught by a young man in our youth group whose mother died 34 years of age just two days ago. I want you to let that sink in. One of our teenagers is teaching the children of our church at this moment in Kid Planet, and his mom, 34 years of age, died in her sleep just two days ago. 
And I have your attention. Let me just say, we have folks that are seated right here. You have done absolutely nothing for Christ. You've never told a co-worker. Coming Sunday morning is if it fits in your schedule. Singing and worshiping back to the Lord is for other people to do. The fact is, is that many of our offering boxes have more dust in them than they ever do a tithing envelope. You don't even give financially back to the Lord. We have people that you haven't prayed with your family or prayed for your family or prayed over your family in years. The King of Kings came for sinners, nobodies. He came to conquer time, and yet often we sit and say it's for someone else. For someone else to do. You don't understand, Pastor Armstrong. You don't understand. I have a career. I have a sports program for my children. You don't understand, Pastor Armstrong. I, when I get to $100,000 in my bank account, then I'll start giving. Oh, you'll never give. If you don't give now on, on what you have now, you'll never give if you double, triple, quadruple it. Fact is, is that many of us are like Moses who offered many excuses why he could not serve God and God took every one of his excuses away and said, now what are you going to do? And Moses said, okay, God, I'll serve you. Moses gave five excuses why he would not serve God. And God removed the excuses. Some God, sometimes God has to get our attention through a financial calamity or a health crisis. And the thing is, is that we miss it. God's knocking at our door. He's trying to get a hold of us. He's trying to get our attention. And we was, but yet ignore that other time, another time, this time that God's trying to get our attention. Folks, I'm asking you, what are you doing to make a difference? Look at all of those people, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Look at all of those generations that there were nobodies and there were kings and there were people that we don't know anything about their life, but they were in the lineage of Jesus Christ. They've made a difference. I wonder today if the future of Tucson Baptist Church depended on you, how long would we be in existence? If the future of Tucson Baptist Church depended on you, how long would we be in existence? Would we close the doors next week or next month? Or will we still be thriving 10 years from now? You see, it's going to take all of us to make a difference, not just one or two. This is our church. It's not my church. It's our church. What are you doing? I wrote out a prayer on Tuesday of this week. I like to write out prayers. You've seen that. I wrote out this prayer, and I would like for us to read it out loud this morning. We did not do a responsive reading this morning, but I would like for us to read this prayer out loud, prayerfully unto the Lord. Could we do that together? Let's do this. Father, I thank you for the complete record of history that validates your word.
As a Gentile, thank you for coming to give your life for me. As a failure, thank you for giving your life for me. As a nobody in this world, thank you for giving your life for me. As a sinner, thank you for taking my place on that cruel cross to die for my sins. Father, help me to never be ashamed of you. Give me courage to speak about you this week. In the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.